Show me the science with Professor Luke O'Neill. Hello, everybody. Luke O'Neill here, and welcome to my show, Me the Science Podcast. Now, um, just to let you know, I love doing these. Uh, you may think, why does he come along and tell us all these things? But uh, I love doing them because I sit here and witter away. And nobody can ask me questions. There's no pesky students to put their hands up and interrupt me. I don't mind you, I love getting questions. But uh, but it's great. I can just sit here and whitter away. And I hope you're getting something out of them. Maybe you're listening to them in bed to help you sleep. You never know. Or when you're out for your walk. So, uh, and as I say, please send in any suggestions you might have for topics that I'll try and get me, me head around and, and describe, describe to you. But this one is a subject very, very close to my heart. I am a biologist. First and foremost, I suppose. Well, I'm a scientist, first of all. And then, as you all know, you, you have to begin to specialise in science. I specialised in biology. And then I began to specialise in biochemistry, a sub-part of biology. And then finally, I got into immunology, getting narrower. There's a great phrase, you know, more and more, but less and less. But, but still, you have to specialise because it's also complicated. So I'm a biologist. Now, and that's about life and all about the biology of systems and plants and animals and how living systems operate. I was always drawn to biology because what could be better than understanding the scientific basis of life itself? Now, a unifying principle of all of life is evolution. So this one, we're going to talk about the science of evolution. And in particular, the question, are we still evolving? It's a question that often comes up because obviously the evidence for evolution is so certain, I would say now, that it's absolutely unquestionable. There's a great phrase, uh, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. So if you're a biologist, uh, evolution explains so much about life. Um, and as I say, when it first the theory was first arrived at in the 1800s, the famous Darwin, you've all heard of Darwin, I'd say. But very importantly, another scientist called Russell Wallace, he came up with the idea at the same time as Darwin, and Darwin almost got scooped. That's the word we use, actually, in science. If someone else discovers something ahead of you, no prize for coming second. Uh, Darwin got wind of Wallace, and then they published together, and they presented their data together. Wallace had less information than Darwin. It spent years and years getting the evidence to support evolution. But both of them came up with the whole idea of evolution. And, of course, the evidence then grew and grew and grew. And when Darwin and Wallace came up with their, their theory, because it was, it was that a theory at the time, and often we use the word theory to describe things uh, because it's just an idea initially. Uh, we didn't know about DNA, didn't know about what the mechanism of evolution might be, we now know. And then, and then over the decades, since the 1940s, I guess, the evidence that DNA was at the heart of evolution and how the evolutionary process might work became clearer and clearer and clearer. And, uh, you know, given that we all accept evolution now and, and we wonder, like a million years ago, there were no humans on Earth because we know from the fossil record, uh, we start to evolve and we eventually evolve into us, it's a very interesting question, are we still evolving? And if you go forward, say, 100,000 years from now, will we have evolved a third eye? Now, we won't, but that kind of thing. You know, In other words, are we, are we going to see evolution going on? And guess what? And again, this is recent stuff, because I always try to keep you up to date. Lots of evidence we are still evolving. And I'm going to give you a few examples as we go along. Now, let me just explain about evolution as well, why we're here, because we've got to go back to, the, the, to basics in a way. All species on Earth are descended from a previous species through survival of the fittest. That's the great phrase that was come up with, which Darwin himself didn't coin, strangely. He used the phrase natural selection, but it is about survival of the fittest. And if you go all the way back to four billion years ago, the first cell arose on Earth. It uses DNA as its recipe to make more cells. And when a cell divides, it copies the recipe. And now we've got two cells. The thing is, there's a random mutation happens during that process. 
So the two daughter cells, and we call them daughter cells actually, are slightly different from the parent and even from each other, unless they're clones. And it's a random event, right? Now, if that one daughter cell has a trait that allows it to survive, because maybe the weather changes or the food changes or something in the environment changes, one will survive because it's got the right genes through mutation to survive, the other one doesn't, and now evolution begins because that one now begins to dominate. And that might have a certain trait that was more evident than, than the parent. And then that one divides. And now the offspring, that trait might be even stronger. And finally, we get these all these different species. Now, it's hard to get your head around. Uh, it goes over the course of hundreds of thousands and millions of years to go from a single cell into, say, a mouse. That took a very long time. Uh, but it was just through the process of random evolution. I'll give you a good analogy that I came up with this morning. Now, if anybody wants to criticise this analogy, please do, because I think it's a good one. Now, it's a bit strange, but I'm going to do my best, right? Imagine you've got five different sort of snooker balls in a bucket, but they're all different sizes. Now, that sounds a bit strange. And one of them is very small, right? And the others are bigger, and it's a random thing, okay? Let's say there's a hole in the bucket, all right? And only the small one can fit through. So the small one now fits through the hole, the others can't fit through, and now they're gone. The new one, is the one that's fitted through goes into the next bucket, and that's survival of the fittest. The smallest one is fit because it can fit through the hole. Now we have a bucket with a small one. That begins to divide. We get loads of more balls, from snooker balls, from the one because it's dividing, and the next ones are dividing as well. And again, let's say one randomly crops up that's even smaller, and a smaller hole appears in the bucket. That now gets selected, and that survives into the next bucket. And remember, the production of all the snooker balls being slightly different is a random event. The environment is the hole in the bucket. There's a hole in the bucket. Maybe Kira will use that as a song, I'm just realised. Um, but that kind of thing, you know, is what we're talking about. Now, in, in, in biology, it might be the climate changes and one species can survive the colder climate because it's got the right variants of the genes, you see. And that's why there's such diversity in the human population, say. And diversity is essential to life on Earth just in case conditions change and one member of the species might survive. Two really good examples, which I came across recently. The first is, there's all these islands in the Pacific. Now, the Galapagos was the great one that Darwin used. There's loads of islands with unique birds on them, right? And the, uh, these birds only occur on one specific island. Henderson Island is a famous one in the Pitcairn group that I heard about recently. There are four unique species of bird on that island that occur nowhere else. Now, the island is so remote. It's like a little test tube, I suppose, in a way. And a bird must have arrived there and then began evolving into different species. But it was only a, the conditions on that island, the specific conditions on that island, selected those be the, the ones to survive. And that maybe there weren't predators there, whatever, to eat the birds and allowed these specific species to evolve. Fruit doves was the one I came across. That's one good example. An even better one that you would all understand is infectious diseases. Now again, I've said this a million times, I'll say it again. All our immune systems are slightly different because of diversity in the population, because of these random mutations. You see, the instructions that we all have to build our immune systems are slightly different, me compared to you, or me compared to my sibling. If I'm identical twin, of course, the genes are all identical. But, but if, if we're not identical, we have these slight differences. And, and a great example of this was HIV AIDS. There was a set of people who never got sick from AIDS. They had a difference in a gene called CCR5. And the virus couldn't latch onto the cells in those people because the CCR5 was different and they resisted HIV. Now, if HIV was that run riot, everybody would have, everybody would have died out. 
The only ones to survive would have been the ones with the CCR5 variant. Again, survival of the fittest, and everybody would then be descended from those people. That's evolution, you see, because the, the species is changing, and CCR5 is dominating now, and that becomes a feature of the offspring. And you can see now how loads of genes might be like that, and new species might survive. So, in, in other words, one of the big selective pressures, we call this, by the way, is infection. And we're selecting out people who can survive infection all the time. So our immune systems are like snapshots of survival in many ways. And that, again, is more evidence for evolution is the way to think of it. In other words, everybody else dies and the fittest survive. And, 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 and the evidence grew and grew and grew that this was happening. Now remember, the timescales of life on Earth are terrifyingly long. So if the first cell arose 4 billion years ago, you get to us 200,000 years ago, that's billions of years of dividing and changing and mutations. And that slow, slow, slow process gives rise to massive differences in species over time. I mean, the other great example is, um, you know, dogs and pigeons are all bred from an original pigeon what, a thousand years ago, and there's massive diversity in the pigeons. So if over a thousand years you can drive such diversity, imagine what a million years does. It's the wonder there's an elephant or a mouse or a tree or a bacteria all descended from the original biological entity. Now, but let's get on to the main thing. What is the evidence that we're gradually evolving? Well, again, scientists have looked at the DNA of people and they're seeing these differences. And the first one that I think is great is we're getting more resistant to malaria. So there's people out there who can resist, a bit like HIV in a way, the malaria parasite, and there's evidence now that those people will have more children, I suppose, and they in turn carry that trait forward. So resistance to malaria, which is a very useful thing, remember a million people a year still die of malaria, so if we can get natural resistance building in, in the long run, that'll be a great thing. In the meantime, of course, we do want to come up with vaccines to stop malaria. But we're evolving to be more resistant to malaria. That's the first one that was very, very clear. The second one is even better evidence is humans are evolving in certain places to survive living at high altitudes. So people who live in Tibet or way up in the mountains in the Andes, they've shown these people have variants in genes which allow them to carry more oxygen in their blood. Now, the higher up you go, the less oxygen there is. It's called hypoxia. And to survive that then, you can imagine if a thousand people began to live up in the mountains, maybe one or two of them had a variant in a gene for a protein to carry oxygen, and they're the ones who survive. So in that population, you see that trait becoming dominant and that, that community has evolved to survive low oxygen. And that's really good evidence. Now, drum roll for this, this week, the Nobel Prize for Medicine or Physiology went to Svante Pabo, who is a scientist in Sweden. He has been studying genetics for years and years and years. And what he's shown is, from his studies, the gene that allows you to survive high altitude is called EPAS1. EPAS1 is the name for it, right? And it turns out that we got that from a type of human called Denisovans. Now, I know this is getting a bit more complicated, but it turns out that when, when us modern humans left Africa, we met two other types of hominids, two human-like species, the Neanderthals in Europe, Denisovans over in Asia, and we began interbreeding with them. It was the Denisovans that gave the humans in places that ultimately like Tibet uh, this, this variant, an EPAS-1, to allow them to survive hypoxia. 
and Svante discovered that as part of Svante won the Nobel Prize, by the way, for studying ancient DNA, Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA, and proving that we did have um, children with these Stone Age people, and those, those genes give us certain things, one of which is being able to survive at high altitude. Now, again, you might wonder, I mean, this is interesting scientifically, but of course, some people have trouble handling oxygen in their bodies, they get a thing called ischemia and perfusion. The fact that that variant allows you to handle oxygen better, who knows? It could be a treatment for stroke even, where you get a cutoff of oxygen to the brain. So again, who would have thought a study on Denisovan DNA and human DNA might give rise to that? But that's the idea. And, and they reckon about 3,000 years ago, that EPAS1 variant began to dominate in these populations that live at high altitude but it originated in these Denisovans, uh, they reckon. So again, evolution and action survival of the fittest. Another one I like is the Inuits, who are up in the upper parts of, of Europe, up around the Arctic and so on. Uh, they are better at digesting fat. And that was shown to be the case, actually. They have a very fat-rich diet because they live off things like blubber and seals and all that kind of thing. And it's very rich in fat. Now, fat can be very damaging. Too much fat's bad. But some of them had a gene to allow them to handle the high-fat diet and survive. And that's a very interesting one because obviously that could be useful to us as well. If we could all have that gene, we could all eat lots of fat and not get heart disease, you see. So again, that discovery shows selection of a trait because of the local environment, in this case a high-fat diet, selects out people who can handle the high-fat diet and all the kids are descended from those. And again, evolution is happening there to select out that specific trait, survival of the fittest, yet again. So again, that could be useful in terms of understanding obesity and all kinds of things. Now remember, they're not living off Big Macs up there. Uh, they're living off natural fat. And in fact, when Inuits go and live in a Western diet, they put on a lot of weight. They're getting the bad kind of fat, I suppose. It's the natural environment that um, is beneficial to their metabolism, if you will, and, and the genes they've got. It looks like anyway, my reading of it. That's the case. And then the other thing to say is um, they've now found the fastest evolving gene in humans, the one that's been changing fastest over time. And this, remember, to, to, to discover this, you look back through ancient DNA and all kinds of things and look at the rate at which this is changing, comparing modern today, today's humans to earlier humans. That's how you figure out how the genes are mutating. This gene has the great name Human Accelerator, Accelerated Region 1, HAR1, HAR1 is the gene. And that is evolving fastest, right? Now, some of the evidence for this is, did you know you are 98% identical in your DNA to chimpanzees? They are our closest relatives of life on Earth. That means we're descended from a common ancestor. One, one of the offspring gave rise to us, the other gave rise to chimpanzees. But we share all this DNA, 98%. And it's obvious because we've got arms and legs and eyes and all the rest of it, you know. So we're 98% identical to chimps. But this one is only 85% identical. So it's changed over that time since we began evolving and became distinct from chimps. This gene has been changing the fastest. Now, you'd like to know what that gene does, I bet you. And you know what? We don't know. A great thing in science is to the unknowns. And lots of scientists are working on HAR1. What the hell does it do? Because it's been changing very, very fast. Of course, one idea would be it gave us our intelligence because one big difference between us and chimps is we're much more inventive. We use tools in interesting ways. Compared to chimps do this as well, but we're much more inventive than chimps. Music, humour, all the things that make us uniquely human. Who knows, in Har 1, 
we might find the basis for that. Wouldn't that be tremendous? To explain how we diverged from chimpanzees in terms of our behaviour and the way we do things. Maybe the answer will lie in the HAR1 gene, the fastest evolving gene in humans. Love to find out what that gene does. So there you have it. All the evidence suggests that we keep evolving. And over the course of a few thousand years, certain traits are, are dominating in our population because it's a lot of the fittest. If we go further forward, who knows, maybe we'll grow an extra arm. That could be useful. Maybe in a certain, I can't imagine the situation in which you need three arms. But it's hard to imagine. What well, One other theory is we, our, our sight will get worse and worse. Uh, because we're relying on lights more and more in houses and therefore dim light you know you're, you don't need to have really great eyesight anymore because light is there to help our eyesight um, a second idea is we might get taller and taller for various reasons uh, if we go into space of course we'd evolve to be suited to gravity which kind of all kinds of effects on our bodies you never know these are very speculative things of course but, um, but still we're going to see us continuing to evolve because evolution is relentless and it keeps going on and on and on and who knows what we might evolve into next my dream is that we all evolve into being much nicer to each other wouldn't that be great and not kidding each other and trying to destroy the planet wouldn't that be wonderful if we could evolve into a more considerate species that'll only happen by the way if there's pressure to select those traits in people uh, so let's hope we continue to evolve and that life on earth improves for us and all the species that we share this planet with there you have it the science of evolution and the science of us continuing to evolve into the future and thanks very much for listening and of course my podcast is a news talk production and it goes out every thursday and thanks very much for listening